Hello, everyone. Welcome into this episode of Chasing Better Conversations. And today we have three guests for the price of one. Brian Miller helps experts and leaders talk less, say more, and connect with anyone. Focusing on human connections, Brian works with organizations and individuals to create connected cultures where everyone feels heard, understood, and valued. He comes at this, and this is the three-in-one part, he comes at this having followed uh, the predictable path, or maybe not so much, first as a professional magician, then with a degree in philosophy, and then finally, for good measure, uh, topping it off as a TEDx viral speaker. Brian's TED Talk on Human Connection has been viewed by more than three and a half million people. I urge you to, to uh, check it out, and we'll link it in the show notes. During our conversation today, we'll touch on all three of these areas, and then some. Brian, thanks for joining us today. I've really been looking forward to this. Hey, Eric, me too. Always good to talk to you. You get the award for absolutely the most diverse guest on the podcast this season. Let's start with this issue of uh, an education in philosophy. How'd that come about? Yeah, it is an issue. Definitely. It was an issue for my parents anyway. They, uh, my, my parents are computer scientists. I'm sure philosophy was not their thing that they imagined uh, going into. I, I, I fell backwards into philosophy because of process of elimination. So I started college as an audio engineering major. Uh, <laughs> I was originally going to go to music school. I, I'm a guitarist. Like if, if anybody's watching the video of this, or you can see there's a guitars all over the walls behind me. And I, I, you know, spent a year preparing for my Berkeley College of Music audition because I wanted to go to Berkeley. If you play, you know, if you want to do classical, you go to Juilliard or whatever. But if you're going to play rock or pop, you go to Berkeley. It's the number one music school in North America for rock and pop. And I spent a year preparing for my audition, and I auditioned for Berkeley. And that year, 2,000 guitarists had applied, and only 100 were accepted. And I got accepted. I got oh, into wow. Berkeley College of Music, and I was like, "This is it! I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to Berkeley. Uh, that's the path, right? Go to Berkeley, become rock star." And uh, then I got the piece of paper that said, "Here's what the tuition costs." <laughs> and my father <laughs> said, "Listen." I've done pretty well, and I've done well for you. I've been putting away for school since you were born for 18 years. So whatever I've put away, you can use all of it, but there's not a penny more from me. I've done my job. And he put it in front of me, and it wasn't even enough to cover one year. <laughs> so I went on a full scholarship to a state school instead that happened to have an audio engineering program. So I'm like, this is great. I'm going to do audio engineering. I can still play music. And then my freshman year of college is the year that the music industry went bankrupt. Mm. industry just you know napster a couple of years earlier and then basically just the whole thing fell out and so i was like okay i'm a year into a music industry program there's not going to be a music industry in three years when i get out of here let's do something else so i became a secondary education math major so i was going to be a high school math teacher a year into that realized i didn't like the education classes so i dropped the ed major and that's when i realized i was only a math major and I don't like math. And I had a really <laughs> real problem moment. So going into junior year of college, I decided I got to pick up a different major. I'll just stick with the math thing. I'll get the degree, whatever. But I picked up a philosophy major because I had taken one philosophy class in high school. 
And essentially what I thought philosophy was was just like talking about the matrix. I mean, that's what I thought philosophy was. And I was like, if that's it, I'm in. Right. Worse like than, this yeah. is awesome. Worse and so I picked up the philosophy major as a ju- starting junior in college and did the entire major and got invited into a PhD program straight out of undergrad for philosophy. I just loved it. Got completely wow. sucked in. That inevitably led, or I may have it backwards, that inevitably led <laughs> you to the uh, art of magic, right? Yeah. Qu- so which it's came interesting. First? Yes, it was uh, magic. It was actually a part of my life uh, since I was a little, little kid. My dad and my grandfather were magic lovers, magic enthusiasts. Uh, (sighs) Neither of them did it professionally, but they both did magic tricks just for fun. So I was brought I was brought to magic shows. I was, you know, got magic kits for birthdays and holidays. It was a huge part of my life. When I was 15 or 16, I started doing my first paid work as a magician because it it seemed better than McDonald's. Uh, And I was. I was working at McDonald's, the only job I've ever had. I worked there for a little under a year. And (laughs) I I was, you know, 35 hours a week over that hot grill on the nights and weekends at McDonald's. And then I would get a magic gig that would pay the same amount in two hours to do card tricks that I was making in a week over that hot grill at McDonald's. And so after a year at McDonald's, I said to my dad, I'm not going back to McDonald's this summer. I'm going to do magic instead. And I, I did. So he, he made me a deal. He said, if, if you can make a comparable amount of money doing magic that you would have made at McDonald's, then you can do magic. Now, the money didn't actually matter. But the reason, in retrospect, I realized the reason he said that was so I couldn't just sit in my room doing card tricks for myself all summer. He was like, <laughs> you have to go find a way to do this if you're going to do it for real. So he really, I mean, that, that little deal, because I was like, deal, like, right? Like way better than McDonald's. So I learned how to sell my services to restaurants, to backyard barbecues, to whatever. We could probably riff for an hour on the conversation that your dad had with you. That's process. <laughs> the, the TED Talk. I'm interested in some of what led you to do the TED Talk, but I really want to hear you reflect a little bit on the the core of that TED Talk, which mm. is the interaction with a blind man in your audience one mm. night. Can you, talk a little, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that gets to this issue of perspective. And boy, mm. perspective has everything to do with how we have good conversations, right? Oh, I mean, 100%. If not the whole, it's like almost all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I got invited to uh, TEDx Manchester High School. Uh, I was living in Connecticut. It's a tiny town, and the the history teacher at the high school decided he was going to apply for a TEDx license, and he got approved. This is in kind of the end of the early days of TEDx. It was kind of as TEDx was really starting to take off, but it was at the end of the early days. So it was a lot more of a Wild West back mm-hmm. then than it is now, this tightly controlled mm-hmm. lunacy uh, of, a, of an industry. And so, you know, this high school teacher got a TEDx license. And so because it was a TEDx youth event, it was, he was obviously in charge. He was the adult who had the license, but the students ran it, organized it. They manned the cameras. They hosted the event. They found the speakers. They approved the speakers. They, these are 15 year olds running this TEDx event. I was a magician. At that point I had gotten out of the starving artist thing. I was making a good living. I was touring nationally. And so I got invited on that premise. It's like, Hey, you've been really successful in an unusual field. Maybe you can come talk about that at our TEDx conference. And I was like, okay, cool. But the problem was I I kept thinking, I want to give a TED talk 
as a magician that's actually beneficial to the average non-magician. And at the time, there were only a small handful of TED or TEDx talks ever given by magicians, five or six at the time. Now there's hundreds, but at the time it's five or six. And I watched all of them, but I thought they were only for me. They were only for magicians. They were about Mm -hmm. wonder, deception, misdirection, stuff the magicians geek out about, industry stuff. Sure. And so I realized the one thing magicians master intuitively is the ability to take on perspectives that are different from their own. Mm. Because in order to create magic for an audience, I know all the secrets, you know none of them, we couldn't have a more different perspective. And I can't create magic unless I can see the trick from your perspective. And when I say see, I don't mean literally see, although I do partly mean literally see for magicians. I need Mm -hmm. to be able to literally see it, but also emotionally see it, emotionally experience it from the point of view of the audience. It's very, very difficult because if you know the secret to the trick, it's hard to see the magic. Can't see it. So magicians master the ability to do something psychologists call perspective taking, which is taking on the point of view of another person. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know what? That feels like a valuable skill in life not just in magic. And I realized I had used that skill a lot in life to become much better at relationships and friendships where when I was younger, I had really struggled with relationships and friendships. I was kind of an asshole, you know, and, and I, and I, I felt guilty about that. And I, I thought, but I've learned how to be better at that because of magic. Maybe I'll give a Ted talk showing other people how to learn from magic too. And that's the talk that I gave. And, um, you know, it, it went, freaking bananas it, it, you know three and a half million views could have never predicted the story of the blind guy in the restaurant the original version of my talk that i wrote did not have that story in it and i showed it to my friend um hmm. uh, zoe who's actually now very famous dr zoe chance from yale she's got a global bestseller book but at the time she was just an assistant professor at yale school of management not to diminish that very very big important <laughs> but nobody knew who she was at the time um and so I sent it over to, to Zoe, who had given a TEDx talk like two years earlier. She's the only person I knew who'd given one. And I was like, can you read this? Like, tell me what you think. And and she said, you know, you you came back. She said, I like all the ideas in here, but you really need a story. And I said, mm. what do you mean? Like, what kind of a story? She goes, and then she goes, you know, years ago, you told me this story of one night that you were in a restaurant and a blind guy came in and you were doing magic and you didn't realize he was blind and you were embarrassed by it. But then you figured out a way to create magic for him, even though he was blind and it blew everybody's mind. And she said, I have retold that story so many times. And she said, that story perfectly exemplifies what you're talking about here. If you yeah. can get that story into the talk, then you'll really have something. It's a great story. Um, it it sums, sums up the idea of the issue related to perspective perfectly. If if we were smart, we would just roll the roll the TED talk right now, right? Well, that's the thing is that that's you know people people can go watch that, and it's not like yeah. I'm trying to get them to go watch the way I told it in the recorded talk is told the way it should be told, and it's told theatrically on a stage in front of people. So that's yeah. the way to watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great story. Talk for a second about uh, you alluded you talked about the conversation with your dad, mm-hmm. or the conversation he had with you. What other conversations, anything else you can point to in your formative uh, years, any other conversations that really stand out as having been different and Mm -hmm. uh, just stayed with you? Yeah. So I'm going to go back to high school. There were two teachers in high school that shaped my life significantly. 
my high school history teacher, which is interesting because I didn't like history at all, as I mentioned earlier. <laughs> None of us seem to when we're kids and then you get older and you're like, oh, it's the most interesting thing. Yeah. But he was the one that actually did the philosophy elective. He had he had by himself, his name was Marcus Miranda, um, is Marcus Miranda, he's still teaching. He said, philosophy is not the business of answering questions. Philosophy is the business of questioning answers. <laughs> and it changed my life. And it, it just became the way that I see the world, the way that I approach the world. I'm so much more interested in questioning answers and asking the right questions. And, and because you get the answer to the question you ask. And this is an underappreciated principle, I think. How does that, how does that uh, play into your work with people whose in one way or another, goal is to connect with a marketplace. Yeah, totally. And so this is where all the things I ever did, the current business that I run is the the intersection of the three different wildly diverse things I have in my background. The business I'm currently running is consulting practice. There's some coaching elements, but it's a consulting practice on core messaging, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that actually sounds like the most boring thing I've ever done when you say it out loud like that. But it's <laughs> the most interesting thing because I learned as a magician how to um, immediately connect with someone who has a different perspective than you. Right. So I like as a magician, you learn how to quickly take on someone else's perspective because that's what magic was. We talked about that. Then I was speaking as it, after the TED Talk went viral. I spent years and years, and I still do, speaking on human connection, working with organizations, building connected cultures. So I learned all about how to make people feel heard, understood, and valued, and how to teach others how to do that. And then I've coached dozens of speakers on giving TED Talks and TEDx Talks and TED Style Talks, which is all about clarity of communication quickly and clearly. And so those three things have all met in this consulting business that I run now. And basically, the whole idea about questioning answers becoming this, this, this through line all the way from there, as you, as you correctly identified, all the way from there to today, is when a business or a solopreneur, an expert or a leader, they come to me and they're struggling to convey what they do quickly enough, clearly enough. They're not getting buy-in. Buy-in requires belief. This is a fundamental principle of the work that I do. Buy-in requires belief, which means you need to deeply understand what your customer, client, audience believes, and you need to craft your messaging in a way that says to them, I understand your belief and what we do and the way that we do it aligns with that belief, which for most of my clients starts with questioning the way they already do things because <laughs> they come in with answers. Everybody comes in and says, let me tell you about our thing. And they tell me about their product or their service or their whatever, their idea. And it's all focused on them. It's all about their idea. It's their solution. And it doesn't take into consideration at all, or if it does only a tiny bit, the perspective of the other person, the client, the customer, the prospect, the audience. And so I start by questioning their answers, say, no, no, you're giving me answers. I want to back up and ask the right questions about your audience and who you're trying to serve. Are there common themes? What are two or three questions that you would suggest I ask my prospective clients? 
Yeah, so the it's interesting, right? So there's questions that you can ask your clients or prospects, but mm. there's also questions you can ask yourself. And I'm sure. much more interested oh, yeah. in questions you yeah. ask yourself. Great point. Because they inform the questions you ask Great other people. Point. So I would start with these questions. The questions I would start with are psychographics, not demographics. Uh, I think too many people still think in demographics, age, gender, location, household income. I think these are Mm. useless and yes you're selling vacuum cleaners today right mm -hmm. um, and even if you are selling vacuum cleaners they're probably not that helpful anymore i think the questions we should be asking are psychographics which are questions like what do you believe what do you fear what do you want and so you mm. ask yourself what <laughs> does my ideal client <laughs> audience customer what do they believe and these can be beliefs that are positive or negative beliefs we got to get them all on the page what do they believe and if you don't know then you do need to go ask them. You need to do interviews. You need to do research. But you need to ask people to tell you what they believe. And some of these beliefs are going to work in your favor. They're beliefs they already have that align with your message. Some of the beliefs they have work against your message. And it's important to know both. And people do almost exclusively use those two backwards. And, and here's what I mean by that. <laughs> Most people spend most of their time, most business owners spend most of their time talking about the things their audience already believes. Because they're like, that's how I connect with them. They believe this, I believe this, let's talk about that. Except you're kind of preaching to the choir. You're not moving the needle on anything here. They already yep. believe that. It's the stuff that they believe that works against you. And most business owners don't spend a lot of time talking about that stuff. They're like, let's not highlight that. No, 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 no opposite do that the opposite way you're wasting time and energy on stuff they already believe mention it once you both go yeah move on and then spend a lot more time talking about the stuff that works against you because those become the objections the obstacles the reasons that they don't buy or they don't engage so first thing is what do they believe second what do they fear most people are motivated most often by fear. Between belief and number one it's easy for us to think we know what our potential clients believe Bingo. it's i mean there's piles and piles of research we can access there's all kinds of things that uh we can take in that lead us to think we understand what they believe right that is probably worth a conversation in and of itself but talk about the fear factor how do you do that without uh pandering to fear yeah so you you, you don't obviously you don't want to pander to fear but fears are important because fear fear is where you beliefs tend to be beliefs tend to feel rational. I'm going to say feel rational because they're not, but people think their beliefs are rational. And so when we're dealing with beliefs, we're in, we're usually talking in the logical, rational side of things. Mm -hmm. uh, fears are emotional. Yeah. And so deeply understanding the one or two things your customer, client, audience fears most in the world related to whatever you do or your idea is, is really important because yep. if you can state it out loud before they've said it or before they've thought it, you remove the power of the fear. Hmm. And so the way that like I love Marie Forleo describes these as night sweats. What are the things that are keeping your customer <laughs> up at night, waking mm -hmm. up, rolling around, sweating, like not like surface level fears, the deep stuff. Like I'm not like for most of my clients, for example, most of my clients, especially when I'm working on Ted talks, what are the people that are thinking about giving a Ted talk fearful most? They're afraid they're not going to make an impact on the world. Mm. They're afraid that their work just isn't going to matter. 
right? That they're not going to leave a legacy, which is how eventually once I understood that what my clients wanted was not actually to give a TED talk, it's that they wanted to deeply leave an impact and a legacy with their ideas. That's how I eventually got to the tagline of my business or one of my catchphrases over there, which is go make a dent in the universe because <laughs> it spoke directly to the fear, but it doesn't pander to it. It gives them the flip side, the positive mm -hmm. long-term result of overcoming that fear, mm -hmm. right? That's great. Of attacking yep. it. Yep. Great point. Let's take a break. Do a quick uh, lightning round if you're up for that. I'm up for it. And then we'll get back to the philosophy, okay? <laughs> so three people that uh, if you had a chance, it doesn't have to be three, but that's an easy number. Three people that uh, you'd love to have a conversation with, living or dead, and yeah. what would the conversation be about? Yeah, that's a great question. George Carlin. Uh, <laughs> he was my my first real hero in 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 in, in a sense. I was obsessed with Carlin. I loved comedy. Grew up on stand up comedy, but there was something special about Carlin. Where, and I now it's so obvious looking back why it was special to me. He was a master of language. <laughs> he played with language. He was a wordsmith. He used language differently than anybody else used it it, it was it, it, it was the the subject of his work in, in in a lot of ways and he was a philosopher who just <laughs> happened to be a comedian so i would have just loved to ask him kind of anything i yeah. would have loved to just say were you ever nervous like <laughs> that that this one wasn't going to work that everyone was going to turn on you he was the first time I ever uh, cried when a celebrity died. I remember where I was oh, when I wow. found out that he was dead. And I, and, and it was the first time I ever remember crying about somebody that I didn't know personally. Wow. Uh, the second person that I ever cried and I wept was just two years ago, which was Eddie Van Halen. Oh. So hmm. Eddie Van Halen is my guitar hero. He's, mm -hmm. the, you know, he's not the reason I got into guitar, but he's the reason I stayed in guitar. Um, Van Halen is just the soundtrack of my life and Eddie's playing just revolutionized the the instrument his energy was infectious he was just he was a genius but he was just humble and sweet and kind and it was just uh there's something really special about his playing just nobody else has ever played like that or sounded like that and nobody ever will i would have just loved to sit and watch him noodle on a guitar uh so there's i mean there's there's Great plenty stuff. of people um yeah there's sure. two of them and Those probably are my grandmother too. I mean, I, I, I miss yeah. my grandmother very, very much. And, uh, I wish I could just have one, one more conversation about her, about how the local deli ripped her off and didn't, you know, take her 25 cents <laughs> off of her bagels. And, you know, I'd love to have yeah. one more nothing conversation with her. <laughs> Sometimes those nothing <laughs> conversations are the, are the best. If you could recommend one conversation to a broad cross section of people who are interested in making a dent. What what one conversation would you suggest we uh, entertain? You need to be asking people the kind of people that you'd like to impact. So first of all, who you're having conversations with is critically important. And, and again, un I think underappreciated. You need to be making sure you're having conversations with the kind of people you actually want to serve and, and to impact and, and putting all your energy there. And once <laughs> you are, ask people what they want. Like, yeah. you know, what do you want most in the world? Because you can't make an impact unless you understand what they're looking for, which doesn't mean you need to deliver the thing they want. It means you need to start there. So 
what I mean is, is meet people where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's one conversation we have over and over and over again in the business world, in the business community, in our personal relationships that we need to stop having? <laughs> That's a good question. What's a conversation we should stop having? I think a lot of people in, in my field, especially talking around human connection, would tell you to stop having small talk. They would tell you to stop, uh, stop talking about the weather and the traffic. And I think hmm. they're wrong. I don't okay. think that's I, – I, I, I don't think that's meaningless. I think that's incredibly important as long as it's a means to an end. I, don't, I think small talk is not an end in and of itself, but it can be a great way to get into a deep conversation. And I'll give you an example because I know I'm kind of addressing this question backwards. But here's a conversation we should stop having. Um, whew, the weather, right? And people, like it's raining outside. Yeah, rain. Rain's been a lot lately. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> we should stop having that conversation. <laughs> what we we should have instead is something like this. Somebody says to you, uh, oh, God, the rain, right? And you go, yeah, what kind of what kind of weather do you prefer? Yeah. And they can go, oh, well, you know, it's so funny. Uh, I actually grew up in Colorado and I missed the snow. Oh, yeah, snow. Did you ever snowboard anything like that? No, I used to go skiing. Were you any good at it? No, I was good at now we can have a real conversation about something that's important to you. We get to values and beliefs real fast if you ask the right follow-up question. Great direction. That's, that's yeah. terrific. To say this, this is maybe an uncertain moment mm. uh, might, be, might be an understatement. Given, given the uncertainties, and especially as it relates to running a business, keeping a business afloat, what kind of conversations does it make sense for us to focus on? Because I think we tend to focus on some of the wrong things. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I think that right now, a lot of companies are asking, how do we survive the recession? They're mm -hmm. asking, how do we survive the, um, the AI apocalypse? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think those are the wrong questions. And I think they're the wrong questions to harken back to earlier in this conversation because you get the answer to the question you ask. Yep. And if you're asking the question, how do we survive this? You are in survival mode and all of your thoughts, ideas, and decisions will be short-term thinking that is unlikely to uh, actually sustain you for, for the long haul. <laughs> so I think the only question that matters right now for most businesses I think AI is the biggest threat to most businesses right now in a very serious way. And I think that businesses are going to go under because their mediocre competitors learn how to use AI well, and they don't. So there are two questions I think every, every business needs to learn how to ask right now. One, do we understand what AI is, how we can leverage it for our business? And two... How do we stay human in the age of AI? Because mm -hmm. I think two things are going to happen simultaneously. First, I think that um, AI is going to become critical. And I think what we're going to see is that people, all of us, are going to very quickly realize we can't trust anything on the internet. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this thing was written by a human, if this... Yeah. voice is actually a real person if the video i'm watching is a real person or if it was fake very quickly uh sam harris describes this as uh epistemologically bankrupt yeah i think that is what's happening we are about to have zero percent trust in anything being real which means i think humans 
are finally, after 150 years of industrialization, going to desperately go back to anything that's real and obvious. I think we're going to see coffee conversations uh, explode, like literal conversations over a cup of coffee at a, <laughs> at a local cafe explode. I think we're going back. We're going. We're going back to see musicians. Uh, in jazz bars on the weekends playing right in front of us and singing and missing notes and right <laughs> i i think yeah. i think real human stuff is coming back which means what on uh, it sounds like a contradiction but i think every business right now needs to ask themselves do we understand ai and how to leverage it better than anybody else in our industry and <laughs> how do we retain our humanity and make sure our customers feel heard understood and valued in an age where they don't know what's real and what's not I feel like we could we could keep going on the AI thing for. Uh, you got you got fifteen uh, more hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that 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 is maybe one of the most important business conversations that isn't taking place much mm -hmm. right now. A lot of people are scared to death of it. Yep. But it's um, it's, it's it's fear. I'm seeing it in my yeah. I'm seeing a lot of the companies I work with. They're like same. They're, they're yeah. only right now starting to go so what's this ai thing do i need yeah. to and i'm like do you need yeah you six months ago you need to the the speed with which it is becoming uh, a staple in any arena is just it, it's phenomenal yeah. yeah yeah for sure hey brian I, I could do this. I could, I literally could just keep, let the tape roll uh, because <laughs> this is a great, great conversation. I love it. But you got things to do. You've talked a little bit about the clients you serve. How do people, people want to stay in touch with you? Where can they find you? How do they follow you? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it, Eric. So uh, first of all, I could do this again for another, you know, however many hours uh, and uh, we should, we should do it again. Absolutely. So, yeah. Where folks want to find me. So if you're out there, if you're an expert or a leader and you're mission driven, right? If you're a mission driven expert or a leader, you're thinking about a speaking career, you're thinking about taking your business to make a real impact in the world, uh, go to earnrespectgetpaid.com. That will take you right to my free video course, which is uh, five ways to become a thought leader in 2023. And because the world is steering really, really seriously in the direction of thought leadership. Uh, more than it ever has. It's been a buzzword for a long time, um, but it's a very real thing right now, which is like, even if you're the business owner of a small or mid-sized company, you or someone in a leadership position, doesn't have to be the CEO, but someone in a leader position should be public facing, should have a public brand, a personal brand, and should be developing thought leadership. And so, yeah, go to earnrespectgetpaid.com. It's a free mini video course for you that I think you'll love. And once you do that, you'll get my newsletter and, and stay in touch from there. And the newsletter is well worth it. We didn't even get to uh, one thing I told you before we started recording that I wanted to be sure and talk about today. <laughs> and that, uh, that was the, the thesis. We'll, we'll just toss it out as a teaser for the next time we visit this idea. Maybe you can take 60 seconds on mm -hmm. the idea that as opposed to the way we typically work on an idea, that messaging articulating the uh, the idea actually hones the message can you, do you can you do 60 seconds on that yeah yeah it's one of my favorite articles i've written in a long time it's something i think about all the time and it never occurred to me to put into words until a week ago or whatever this is like in, in real time as we're having this conversation the premise here is most of us intuitively assume that to get to have better ideas to become a better thinker we need to spend more time thinking 
more time having ideas. So we think, okay, I'm going to take three hours and wrestle with my own ideas and think really hard and get into a trance or meditate or whatever. When actually, you know that that doesn't work. And you know it doesn't work if you've ever had a great idea that you've tried to explain to a friend or family member. <laughs> the second it starts to come out of your mouth, you fumble over your words, you forget what the main point was, you can't convince them, they don't understand. You After a minute or two, you're just like, wait, am I even making sense here? Even though in your head until that moment, it was so clear, so persuasive, such a great idea. The way we become a better thinker, the way we have better ideas is by articulating them, by communicating them. We don't become a better thinker by thinking. We become a better thinker by communicating. It's the opposite way. So you have to, when you have ideas, when you have thoughts, write them down, have conversations. And what happens is when you get them out, when you start to talk out loud, you realize you don't understand it as well as you think you do, which means you're forced to get better at talking about it, which makes the idea more clear. I love this idea. I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I've totally assimilated it, but I really <laughs> love that. For years, people have asked me why I blog. And yeah. th there are all kinds of answers to that question. But the real reason I write is exactly what you're talking about. I need to see if I can communicate it. And, Absolutely. Uh, and most of the time I can't. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what you find so out when you so try to write it. When you try to write a blog that you know someone else is going to read, you find out real fast. Yep. You don't you're you don't know it as well as you think you do. It's not as clear as you thought it was. And yep. imagining the reader, even if no one ever ends up reading it, imagining someone reading it, like the way I phrased it, I think in the article was, um, I I write because it makes me a better thinker. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Great stuff. I appreciate it. I encourage everybody to to go search for the TED Talk. Sign up for your free video course. Um, it, it will be well worth your time. Uh, appreciate it, Eric. Let's do this again and just uh, maybe we'll flip the script and I'm going to have you on my show so I can ask you all the questions and you can tell me all the <laughs> all the things and how business is, has changed and, and what to expect yeah. moving forward. Yeah. No, I, I really like sitting on this side of the desk and uh, <laughs> asking the questions. Yeah. No, that'd be great. Love your stuff. And uh, we will do it again one way or another. Awesome. My pleasure. Thanks. I walk away from our conversation with Brian today with plenty to ponder. First of all, as we think about conversations that make a difference, I might do well to ask myself two questions. Number one, what do those with whom I'm trying to connect really care about, care deeply about? And then secondly, what do they fear the most? And then this thought that Brian left us with today, that the path to honing ideas may not be so much spending more time noodling or thinking. Rather, our best ideas need to be tested in the fire of actual communication. I'm going to work with that one for a while. If you enjoyed this uh, conversation today and maybe picked up an idea or two of your own, please consider following or subscribing and share the podcast with someone that you think might appreciate it. And until next time, here's to conversations that make a difference wherever our vision is leading us. <laughs>